Hey everybody, we are in week two of our series leading up to Christmas called Hope Breaks Through. If you're in the chat this morning, let's let Pastor Tom know how much we loved week one of the series. And come on, let's give a huge welcome to Pastor Tom. Well, good morning, Word of Life. It's wonderful to be able to be here with those of you that are here in person and for everyone online. So glad you guys are able to come and be a part of service. Uh, It has been a busy weekend here at the church. Anybody here Friday night for Carols and Coco? What? It was awesome. Uh, if anybody's here today and Carols and Coco is the first time you've ever kind of, you know, had a touch point with our church and you decided to come and hang out with us this morning, I hope you feel welcome. I hope you feel like you belong. And I uh, hope you have a great time with us this morning. But uh, and then last night, we had the senior Christmas dinner, and that was awesome. It was a lot of fun. It's something that we've been doing as a church for a long time. Uh, last year, which was our first Christmas here, wasn't happening because shutdown was still in flux and all those type of things. Uh, so Meg and I were able to come yesterday, and we brought the Woodies, and they brought um, candy canes and gave them out to everybody who was there at the senior Christmas dinner. And I don't mind telling you, it was absolutely awesome. I'm looking forward to next year, uh, continuing hanging out with everybody. But for today, we're going to continue the series that we started last week called A Hope Breaks Through. And when Megan and I, we were um, putting our heads together and thinking and praying and talking about Christmas months ago, this idea of hope breaks through, uh, came to the, the forefront and came to the top of what we believed we needed to be talking about and sharing about and encouraging the church with. And I don't mind telling you, there has been a lot of heaviness that has been uh, coming up from and has been uh, evident in the lives of people that make up the church, Word of Life. And so um, I want you to know that as we prepare these messages and as we share these with you, these aren't theory only. We have the hurts and the frustrations and the seasons of life that people are in the middle of right now. Represented in this room are people with very serious health problems. Represented in this room are people that are facing job losses. There are people, um, you know, facing all kinds of challenges. We have a missionary in our church right now that wishes they could be back overseas, continuing the mission that God's called them to, but they're in a season back in the States. And there's all kinds of things that are happening that uh, bring heaviness of life. And so as we talk about hope, we really, I want to encourage you, and I want to, hopefully you trust me enough, that this is not theory only. This is something that I truly believe and really honestly believe that if you put this on your life and if you adapt this and you adopt this and you put it in your heart, put it in your mind, put it in your soul, it does start to bring change and it starts to bring hope to very hopeless situations. Is that all good? Well, I want to um, let you know about uh, a British Christmas tradition that is not present here in the States in the same way that it is um, back home. But in the UK, it's a very typical, if not normal or even expected, that an elementary school, we call it a primary school, but an elementary school would have a nativity play. And in these nativity plays, it retells the story wildly inaccurately. One I was a part of as a kid was from the perspective of the donkey that Mary rode on. I'm not joking, it was called The Reluctant Donkey, and the kid that played the donkey did not want to go out on stage once the room was filled with parents. And there's just an image burned in my mind of a teacher shoving this kid, get out there, you are the donkey, get out. Anyway, there was one year, uh, I would have been around seven or eight, and I was, uh, you know, part of the casting session was, you know, was in-depth and it was deep, and uh, the casting director was real intense, but I got the role of shepherd number three. And I don't want to boast, but I was basically a British De Niro in that role. (laughs) And what had happened in the typical get-up is basically my parents found some old bed sheets that they didn't have much of an emotional connection to, draped it over me. I got like a dish rag, put it on my head, and then some kind of, you know, sticky tape just to keep it in place. And then like three kitchen rolls were kind of like taped together, and that was supposed to be a shepherd's staff. 
And I had two lines in this production, wonderful production, rivals anything you've seen on Broadway. My two lines were, I'll build a fire to keep away the wolves. That line is still said in my home to this day. Such was its impact. And then at the stable, I was to say, what a lovely baby. And I don't mind telling you, I was amazing in that role. And I nailed it. It's still talked about to this day in my parents' house. But that's kind of an image that comes to my mind when we come to Christmas, when we come to the nativity and the role of the shepherds. It, it, there really is sort of put in my mind this nice, fuzzy, gentle, calm, peaceful image of these shepherds, you know, these nice people that just played with these, you know, wonderful little lambs all day and, you know, had a wonderful time playing with them. And then they got this angel and they went to the stable. And the story that we see in Luke's gospel is very different than that over-romanticized Hallmark movie type image that we have in our heads. Maybe you don't have that image in your mind, but I certainly does for me is that it's very sort of fuzzy and calm and nice and peaceful. And oh, look at these, you know, wonderful little shepherds. The reality of the story is far much more different than that. Shepherding back in the first century, it was isolated. You were off away from town, out on the outskirts, out in the fields, taking care of the sheep. Consequently, there wasn't much socializing going on. It was a lonely thing. This is not a coveted position that people had. It wasn't a well-paying position. Possibly the reason that we read in Luke's gospel that we come into in just a moment, that we see they were sleeping outside is that they didn't have anywhere else to sleep. There was no other home that they could speak of. They didn't own the sheep that they were employed to look after, but the owner of the sheep had them doing all the kinds of things that the owner did not want to do. We don't get the impression from history or from what we read in the Bible that shepherds were necessarily despised or hated. They don't even appear to have a reputation of being uh, wicked or sinful, but simply that these people were forgotten. These people lived in the outskirts of town. They lived in the fields away from the hustle and bustle of the town. Even the people attached to Bethlehem, this small town, it was away from town. And they were just kind of there. And it was easy to forget about the shepherds. In the Old Testament, the first shepherd that we see was Adam and Eve's sons, Abel. But basically, as soon as they get kicked out of the garden, the first thing we see is people start shepherding. And that continues. Abraham, Jacob, Moses were shepherds. Of course, David was a shepherd. And even God in Ezekiel 34 says that his people have become like sheep without a shepherd after years of weak, ungodly leadership, and God promises that he will be their shepherd. And then we get to read in John chapter 10 that Jesus would fulfill that promise by becoming the good shepherd as he grew up from being that baby in a manger. But there's no reason to think that the shepherds we read about in the nativity story felt any honor in having the same profession as David. We don't have any reason to think that there was a sense of honor and self-worth and nobility, that they were having the same profession as Abraham or Moses or Amos. There's no reason to assume that they were proud of this responsibility because God himself had promised to be a shepherd to his people. The shine quickly wears off when your days are filled with the messy business of looking after sheep in the middle of nowhere. The shine quickly wears off when you're fighting predators and thieves and being underpaid for your trouble. The location of the shepherds, it was on the outskirts of Bethlehem, which means that they were approximately five miles away from the temple in Jerusalem. And it's likely that many of the lambs and sheep that they raised would have been used as sacrifices in the temple, which means in a roundabout, indirect way, part of their responsibility was helping others find hope that they were included in the promises of God while they felt very much on the outside. 
part of their responsibility was making sure that the people visiting the temple, the people going to make sacrifices, had lambs and sheep that were acceptable sacrifices. But they themselves did not feel that close to the promises of God, even though they were helping others. They would have been responsible for delivering sheep and lambs to the sellers in Jerusalem, who in turn would sell the animals to people coming to the temple to make a sacrifice. These men who are directly involved in other people, having deep connection to the promises of God, ironically, they themselves felt little to no connection. There was no time to go to the temple and wait all day to participate in sacrifices. They certainly wouldn't have had the money to cover the expenses. So even though they're helping others feel close to the promise of God, they wouldn't have had a chance to feel that closeness themselves. Now, as Jewish men in the first century, they would have had a knowledge and an understanding of the promises of God, the promise of the Messiah, and the life of poverty and isolation as a shepherd. It's easy to imagine that they felt a distance from those promises. Even though they had a knowledge of the Messiah, being in poverty, being isolated, away from the city, it's easy to imagine that they wouldn't have had that close connection to these promises. And these men would have been typical of many who may have had some kind of knowledge or some kind of understanding, but still it didn't shape or affect their lives in any significant way. That feeling of the promises of God being for other people is something that we can identify with. And if we don't, we definitely know people that do. We know people that feel that they're on the outside of the promises of God. We know people who feel that even though they might kind of sort of be included, at best they're on the edge. That it's not for them, maybe it's the feeling that it's for someone else. The illustration that I thought as I was preparing this and what came to mind that helped give me some understanding to it all. How many of you have ever been to a wedding as a plus one? How many of you have ever started a new job in like November, December time and it's the annual Christmas party and you go and you're not quite sure how to conduct yourself? You're invited, you're a plus one, you're not there illegitimately, but you're not part of the family. You're invited, you're included, but you don't know the backstory, you don't know the history, you don't know the inside jokes. You're there, you're allowed to be there, it's okay that you're there, but you don't feel like you're at home in the promises. You don't feel like you're at home as part of the celebration with the wedding or the Christmas party or whatever it might be. You're invited, but you don't feel like you belong. And this is a helpful picture of how the shepherds would have felt in their connection to the promise of God and the hope of God, that they're kind of invited, that they're sort of included, but not really. In the same way, we can feel on the outside. We can feel that maybe it's because we feel we don't measure up. Maybe it's because our life has got a number of regrets that are weighing us down. Maybe there's a feeling that it's, it's for family, but I'm kind of just a tag along. Maybe I'm here because it's expected of me, and maybe I have some kind of knowledge of the promises of God and who Jesus is and what the message of Jesus means for me, but it, it's not enough to bring any bad, any change. It's not enough to affect my life. I'm just kind of on the edge of things. I'm kind of here as a tag along. I'm here because I got invited. I'm here as a plus one. I'm on the outskirts of things. I'm here, I'll turn up, but I gotta be quiet and keep myself stifled down and keep myself muted because, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm not quite sure I feel like I belong. I, I know it's okay for me to be here, but I'm not quite sure I quite fit in, not quite sure that I'm included. And the shepherds give us a picture of the kind of invited, kind of included, but not really. And if we believe like this and think like this, then we don't let the promise of God impact us. Our faith in Jesus doesn't define us. There's no confidence. There's no passion for the promises of God. And there's certainly no transformation. And you and I may have different reasons from the shepherds for feeling on the outside or on the edge of things. 
But God is bringing those on the edge to the center and the heart of his promises. We can hear the message of Christmas, the message of Jesus, this story of hope, but respond like it's for someone else. Maybe it's for me in an indirect kind of way. Or maybe God loves me, but only because he loves everybody. Or Jesus died for me, but only because he died for everybody. And we just feel like our connection to the promise and consequently the hope of God is loose and impersonal. Though the specific circumstances are very different from our own, we should expect that this is exactly how the shepherds in the nativity story felt about the promises of God. Maybe they feel like they're indirectly included. Maybe they feel like everyone else is, so maybe they will be. Maybe they don't care at all. Maybe they feel excluded altogether. Maybe they feel like they might be included in a general sense. But that disconnected response to the promise of God doesn't produce the hope that we can see in the message of Jesus and certainly doesn't transform our lives. There's no passion or confidence in joy or peace that comes from that. The Christmas message is a message of hope and is an invitation for those who feel on the outside or on the edge to embrace this hope, not as outsiders, but as welcomed family members and to take their place in the heart of God's promise. And as for these forgotten people that God chooses to send an angel to announce the birth of his son. So we're going to go to Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, which is amazing that that's an automatic response for anybody when they see an angel, is absolute terror. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth laying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels have returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. Now they found in the Greek, it doesn't suggest that, uh, that they knew where they were going, that there was any specific direction that you go to this house. This paints the picture of the shepherds knocking on every door they can find saying, do you have a new baby? Do you have a baby in a manger wrapped in cloth? Do you have a baby? Is there a baby here? No baby? I need a baby. It paints this picture of them searching Bethlehem to find this newborn baby that they were told was going to be there. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. One of the things I love about this is the passion, the confidence, the joy and peace that would have been missing is being restored as they joyfully bounce back to the flock. God chose a group of outsiders to include in the story of his son's birth. People who, due to the circumstance of their life and their experiences, would have felt like people on the outside with no significant connection to the promise. And now they're a part of the moment when all of human history changed and Jesus was born. This is a good example that God moves people from the edges into the heart of his promise so they can find hope. God moves people from the edges into the heart of his promise so they can find hope. And this is not a cute little moment on a hillside. This is a spectacular moment for the shepherds, visually stunning. 
I want to read to you a few verses again and consider exactly what this means. But Luke 2, starting in verse 9, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. I would love to know what that means. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now, there's a lot of spectacular things that happen throughout the Bible that I wish I could have seen. I wish I could have been an eyewitness to the parting of the Red Sea. There's the first one that comes to mind, an ocean splitting in two so that a nation can walk through on dry ground. I'd love to have been there when Elijah called down fire from heaven that burned up the sacrifice. Wish I could have been there when the walls of Jericho came falling down. Would have been awesome to have been an eyewitness when the sun stood still so that Joshua had another day of battle ahead of him. The smoke filling the temple when Solomon officiated his grand opening. The curtain in the temple splitting in two while Jesus was on the cross. And a number of other visually spectacular things that would have been amazing to have been able to see. But I think what we just read here, that the heavenly host, the armies of heaven, appearing like this on a Judean hillside, will be one of the most visually stunning moments we see in the whole Bible. The armies of heaven. The armies of heaven is what Luke tells us. Now, typically, angels are described as messengers. And even here, what we just read is that suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. And the angel of the Lord appearing among them gives the message. And then a vast crowd of angels, the army and warriors of heaven. And who could possibly know the spiritual battle they had just fought and won to ensure the Son of God would be born in the prophesied time and place? The armies of heaven who have just come and fought a spiritual battle as the Son of God was born, just as was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Who could imagine the victory cry from the armies of heaven? Who could imagine the victory cry from these warriors of God who had just fought and won to ensure the Son was born at the right time in the right place? These outsiders, people who didn't feel any strong connection to God, are now included in what I would say in my estimation is one of the most spectacular moments in all of human history. And you may feel disconnected from God, from his promise. He's bringing people home. And maybe God bringing you into the heart of his promise means a giant display of his majesty like the shepherd's God, or maybe it's something else. But what we see from this and this encounter with the shepherds, it does reveal the heart of God. And it's consistently shown throughout the Bible that the outsider is invited in. And that is part and a key part of the mission of our church. That's a driving principle behind how we make decisions here at the church and the mission that we believe that God has called us to that we want to lead people to become faithful and effective followers of Christ, then we hope that anybody that steps foot in here believes that they can belong. We don't believe that this is achieved by blending in with the world, but by standing out for the right reasons. We want to stand out because we love people deeply and sincerely. We want to stand out because when we gather here together and we worship, it's spirit-led worship that is deeply impacting. We want to have biblical messages that are helpful and encouraging and even challenging, not just for Sunday mornings, but Thursday afternoon, there's something good is still coming out of gathering together and listening to the word. We want people to come and be transformed by the message of Jesus, the savior of the world, 
who in a manger 2,000 years ago fulfilled the impossible promises of God. But as the angel told Mary, nothing is impossible for God. And we get to be a part of the impossible when we put our faith and trust in Him as the Savior and the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one that can repair our broken relationship with God. If that's not worth going psycho over, I don't know what is. But that principle of God bringing the outsider in, of God moving people closer, about God including people that you and I would not include. It runs throughout the Bible. One verse I wanted to share with you that highlights this. Matthew 19, 30. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Talking about the eternal kingdom. And this is consistently demonstrated to be God's heart. Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, talks about how God has raised up people that the world would describe as foolish to preach the message of Jesus. I'm not sure what that says about me. Which has confused people the world over. That God would raise up the foolish things of the world to confuse the wise. The Beatitudes, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, are filled with promises of hope for people who are broken and hurting and forgotten. It's amazing that the shepherds would become the world's first preachers to declare the name of Jesus. Verse 17, after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. And last week we talked about the overflow of hope, about hope being present, a hope that's sourced in God, a hope that's from him and on high and that is anchored in his promise. There's a natural overflow that comes from that. And I don't know how we could possibly keep this hope to ourselves. And as you see from the shepherds, it's not like they got together and had a meeting about how do we tell people the message. It was just a natural overflow that came from their lives. They told anyone and everyone that would listen. This is just pure hope effortlessly overflowing from their lives. These shepherds had had a monumentous experience, and they can't possibly keep it to themselves. Hope sourced from God effortlessly overflows from our lives. We, uh, we see this in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Anybody love Christmas Carol? Anybody love the Muppets version? Yeah, Michael Caine? Okay. Patrick Stewart, anybody like that one? Okay. Well, in Christmas Carol, you've got Scrooge. And before the three ghosts come, Scrooge just wants to be left alone. He has no connection to the joy or the meaning of Christmas. He just wants to be left alone. But then his eyes are open as he spends the night with these three ghosts, and he wakes up Christmas morning, and with a new love for life, the first thing he does is look for ways to spread that to others. Bursts open the window, gets the attention of some kid walking by, and tells him to go get a goose, and the kid gets a big tip. The Cratchits get the best Christmas dinner they've ever had. Bob Cratchit goes into work the next day, finds out he's got a pay raise. Uncle Scrooge goes to see his nephew Fred and is the life of the party. And seeing the promises of God fulfilled does something similar. Scrooge has this incredible moment. I understand it's a fictional story, but roll with me. Scrooge has this moment. The next day can't help but overflow the joy, the hope, the good things that have happened in that transformation. Similarly for us, far much more so for us as we've been impacted, changed, transformed, given hope by the message of Jesus. It can't help but overflow. The promise of the Messiah being revealed changed the shepherd. And we could see that something deep had happened. Verse 20. 
The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them, their lives had been changed. Now there was also an angel, a chapter earlier in Luke 1, who had visited the temple to meet with Zechariah to tell him about the birth of his son who'd grow up to be John the Baptist. Now an angel visiting the temple, that makes sense. The temple is where holy things are supposed to happen. An angel turning up on a farm somewhere, that's not supposed to happen. That makes no sense. But the illogical choice is where God chose to go. There are more suitable people, more qualified people to hear the armies of heaven declare the victory they had seen. There are more suitable people that should have been told the good news about the newborn Messiah. There were priests, there were holy, devout people. A Pharisee would have made more sense. Someone with a good reputation would have made more sense. There are many people who didn't feel on the outside or the edges, but they felt a deep passion for God's promises. And those are not the people that God raised up. They are not the people that God showed himself to. And the shepherds found out that God has no favorites. And it's amazing how many Bible verses spell this out. Let me just rattle off a few for you from Matthew's gospel. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. From Acts 10, then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. Romans, for God does not show favoritism. Galatians, for God has no favorites. Ephesians, he has no favorites. Colossians, for God has no favorites. First Peter, and remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you with a great degree of confidence, God has no favorites. If one person claps, we all have to. Come on, somebody. God has no favorites. And the shepherds found that out. That even though they were on the outside, even though they feel on the edge or the fringe of the promises of God, even though they don't see this direct impact of being occluded in the promises of God, God showed to them something as important for you and I to grasp. He has no favorites. God brings the outsider and moves them closer in. And if God has no favorites, then they can confidently take their place in the heart of God's promise to find hope and abundance. The shepherds truly experienced the verse from John 1. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And interestingly, the shepherds, even though they had this incredible experience that turned them into the very first preachers, even though they had this incredible experience where they'd seen in my estimation was the biggest spectacle, one of the biggest spectacles certainly of all of human history as they saw the armies of heaven declaring the victory that they'd won, they go back to life and nothing has changed. And yet... Everything had changed. They'd seen a dramatic spiritual encounter. They verified with their own eyes that the promise of God has been fulfilled in the manger. And then they go back to the fields. They go back to taking care of the sheep, the messy business, all on their own, on some Judean hillside far away from town, going into town once in a while and nobody knows their name, being sort of seen as some kind of strange outsider that you've never really kind of got to know, not sure if you can trust them or not. These outsiders that shouldn't feel any connection to town, any connection to society, but they've changed. They've changed because of what happened that night. The shepherds went back to their flocks. Nothing had changed, but this time they had a spring in their step. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Hope changes everything, even when nothing has changed. I'm going to say that again if you need to write it down so that you can remind yourself when you need it. 
I encourage you to do so. Hope changes everything, even when nothing has changed. Amen. Previously, these shepherds, they had no strong connection to the promise of God. No real sense of hope in God fulfilling his promise in their lives. No real sense that God would ever pick them to let them know that the Messiah was being born that night. The idea that they would be included in God fulfilling his promises, maybe kind of, sort of was there, but certainly wasn't a driving force in their life, certainly wasn't shaping their lives, certainly wasn't changing how they think, certainly wasn't determining how they go through life. But hope changes everything, even when nothing has changed. I want to share with you uh, another verse, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. But there's a reason why I want to share with it, and you'll see why. And this is a moment in the life of Jesus leading up to the, uh, his death. It's shortly before his death and resurrection. Matthew 26. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare me for my, my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. And sure enough, all over the world, people still talk about this woman and this moment of worship where she poured the perfume on his feet. And in the same way, we are still talking about the shepherds 2,000 years later. All over the UK, there are eight-year-old boys with dish towels on their heads and a homemade staff and old bed linen wrapped over their shoulders. Yes, it's biblically inaccurate, but they're remembered. These shepherds who had gone through life feeling forgotten are remembered today. God has an incredible way of remembering the forgotten. The people who feel on the outside. The people who feel easily dismissed. People who feel distant and removed and remote from his promises and his hope. He has an incredibly consistent habit of bringing those people closer. Of bringing you and I into his promise. Those shepherds had no good reason to think that the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, would turn up send an angel to let them know that his son was going to be born in Bethlehem and they could go see him with their own eyes and worship him. They had no idea that a vast army of heaven was going to turn up, probably scaring the life out of the sheep, and reveal themselves to them. But God has a habit of remembering the forgotten. Well, Megan and I, when we were considering this series for Christmas, we thought it best to spend this time talking about the shepherds and the word forgotten kept coming back to us. I think it's helpful for you and I because there are many of us here, many of you work watching online that feel forgotten by culture, forgotten by people in town, just like the shepherds, possibly forgotten by family. And yet just as the shepherds are drawn into God's story, you and I can be drawn into God's story. I wonder how many of us feel that sense of being forgotten or feel that sense of being on the edge of the promises of God or feeling like an outsider, even though we're here every Sunday, even though we're part of small group, even though we're on a team, even though we go to youth group on Wednesday night, 
feeling like we're an outsider, feeling like we're on the edge, feeling like we're just punching in and punching out, but don't feel a deep, life-changing connection to the hope of God. And Joseph in the Old Testament, not Mary's husband, but the one from Genesis, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And if that wasn't bad enough, he's accused of a crime that he didn't commit and gets thrown in jail. And while he's in jail, he makes a friend and the friend promises, if I get out, I'm going to help you get out. Now, I don't know about you, but that would make me happy if I'm in jail, that I've got a lifeline to get out of there. The Bible tells us that the same guy that promised, I'm going to get you out, gets out and forgets all about Joseph. Here he is, completely forgotten. That feeling on the edge of being left behind. No one knowing your name, no one having value placed upon you. God is in the business of remembering the forgotten. You know, the Christmas message is a message of hope. And it's an invitation for those who feel on the outside or on the edge to embrace this message of hope, not as outsiders, but as welcomed family members and to take their place in the heart of God's promise. God moves people from the edges into the heart of his promise so they can find hope, a hope sourced from God that effortlessly overflows from our lives. Remembering that hope changes everything, even when nothing has changed. And hope means that forgotten people believe that they are remembered by God. I got a couple of questions for you. It might be helpful for you to write these down. Maybe there'll be a chance this week for you to reflect on this and pray about it a little bit, perhaps talking about it with someone you trust. But the first question is, do you feel you're on the outside or on the edge of God's promise? Do you feel you're on the outside or on the edge of God's promise? And there's any number of ways that you can feel this or any number of reasons that you can feel this, that you're on the edge or you're on the outside. Maybe it's because you've got a long list of regrets and you can't get past the fact that God can overlook that and God can deal with that. Maybe you just feel that your station in life, your status in life, it's not enough. You're not good enough. You're less than and that you don't have a place in the promises of God. Perhaps you're going through life and everything is fine. And you're not quite sure why on earth you would ever need the creator of the universe to have a meaningful place in your life because everything is going just fine. Work is fine. Finances are fine. Health is fine. There's no room for God in this. I don't need Everything is fine. That attitude cuts us off from the hope and the promise of God. And God is on the business of bringing people, no matter what reason, no matter what circumstance, that led them to feel and believe that they're on the outside, that they're on the edges, and bring them close to the heart of hope. Second question, is hope changing everything, even if nothing is changing? Is the hope that comes from God changing your heart and mind? Is it putting a bounce in your step as you head back to your flock, whatever your flock really is? Is the hope of God changing and transforming your heart and mind? You know, this Christmas, we're talking about hope, talking about the Christmas story. And the truth is, around Christmas time, I love Christmas. I love Christmas trees going up. I love decorating the tree in my house. I love giving gifts to people in our family, and I love receiving gifts. I love Christmas music. And they'd be like, Last Christmas by Wham? That's good British music. But Christmas lights, Christmas movies. I don't know how many times we've watched Home Alone already in my house. I love all that stuff. I love Christmas. I love all the stuff. But all of it comes wildly second place to the message of hope that that manger represents. 
that the Savior of the world would break into human history so that you and I can be recipients of this hope. The impossible message of a Savior can change our lives, can change our hearts and minds. Message of hope. Whether we want to accept it or not, the message of the Bible is that we need a Savior. We all have regrets. We all have things we wish we'd never done. We've all done things that we never should have done. And the Bible calls it sin. And we hate the word sin. It's abrasive to us. It makes us uncomfortable. But in a moment of honesty, we all get that we've done things that have distanced us from God. Jesus loves us so much. God loves us so much that he would send his son, that God would become humanity so that on a cross, he could pay the price that you and I could never ever pay on behalf of humanity. And you may be here today and you may have heard that message a hundred times. You may have never heard it before, I don't know, but something from today has just got you to the point where you're ready to say, you know what, I'm not following God, but I wanna start. I'm done living on the edge. I wanna get right into the middle of who he is. I wanna be all about his plans, his purposes, his promises. And if that's you today, I would love to pray for you. So I invite everyone here just to close your eyes and bow your heads. This is just to give privacy and some discretion to everyone around you. But this may be the most important moment in your entire life for you as you make that initial decision that you're gonna start following God today. And if that's you, if you're ready, if this is the moment where you're gonna start doing that, I'd love to pray for you. So if that's you today, I just wanna invite you, if you just put your hand up just for a moment, just so I know who I'm praying for. If you wanna start following God today, just put your hand up. And when we pray in just a moment, I'll pray for you. Thank you. Anybody else here? Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Thank you. Anyone else? I give you my word. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to do anything weird. We're going to pray together. And when we do, I'd love to know where we're praying for. Thank you. I did see you. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Online, you can push a button that says, I raise my hand. Before we pray, anybody else that says, Tom, when we pray in just a moment, I want to be included in that prayer. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people making the best decision they could ever make. Amen. Well, we're going to pray a prayer together, and we do this at the end of every service. And the words are going to be on the screen. I want to ask everyone here, when we pray, you pray this with passion. And if you're praying this for the first time, pray believing that a prayer like this has the power to change everything. So come on, everybody. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, let's celebrate. People making the best decision. Amen.